15. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table, at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. A reading from the Word. Thanks be to God. Well, happy Labor Day, everyone, or happy Labor Day weekend. Um, thank you for coming and worshiping us uh, with, with us. Uh, last week, uh, not only did we have a baptism here, but we kicked off a new sermon series. And it's going to be really what we track through between now and uh, December. And what we're doing is we're looking at what it is to be a disciple and what disciples, what followers of Jesus Christ do. What do we do? What does it mean? Well, of course, before we look at what disciples do, it's so absolutely core to sort of define some basic things, right? So before we look at what a disciple does, we just say, well, what is a disciple, right? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to be a Christian? What is the definition of being one who is a disciple? Well, the answer is found throughout the scriptures, but kind of what we looked at last week, but, but also here, what we find in one short story is a perfect example of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple. And that brings us, of course, last week we looked at Peter, James, and John, um, and um, Andrew, and as they were called out of their uh, life as fishermen to follow Jesus Christ, we learned that they weren't perfect. But here we have an incredible story. In fact, it's a story that's so shocking that it's really hard for us to understand what, what, this, what Jesus is really doing in our story with 21st century ears and eyes and minds and hearts. Because we don't know what, how bad Matthew really is. So let me set the stage for us. So what is happening here? Well, of course, Jesus has already been um, born, of course. He's lived 30 years. He's begun his, his uh, ministry. He's been uh, filled with, with the Holy Spirit in baptism. Though he was fully God, he was baptized anyway to, to, uh, to, to find solidarity with us. And he goes off and he begins to uh, uh, take this message of forgiveness of sins through God, through him. That's possible. The kingdom of God is here. But it's just not a one-man show. He goes and he calls people to follow him and be part of this mission with him. And then he comes to Matthew. So as Jesus was uh, walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. So, needs some explanation, right? There's a lot of, of, of assumptions that Matthew actually puts into to this text when he writes it. So what is a tax booth? 
collector. Now, some of you may have heard this before, but I don't think many of us have. Uh, what a tax collector was, uh, we need to look at history. What we have right now, of course, this is first century Palestine, right? Modern day Israel. And at the time that Jesus was alive in about 30 AD here in this story, it was completely controlled by the Romans. They were, the empire was, was there. They had a Roman gover, governor over it. And when the Romans would collect taxes from the provinces that they conquered, would, is they would go in and they would find a local. And they had, of course, all these all over the country. And they'd find a local. And the reason why they find locals is because locals know who's got what. Locals know who's crying poor mouth but is really rich. Locals know where all the treasures are hidden. Locals know the people. And so they find these, these locals and they say, look, we will give you a detachment of soldiers and it's your job to go out and you have a quota of taxes to collect. And we don't care how much you actually collect as long as you meet our quota. So what these tax collectors would do is they would go out amongst their own people. They were collaborating with the enemy and they would go out and they would use the force of the Roman army not just to collect the percentage of taxes. But sometimes to collect double and triple and keep the extra for themselves, making themselves incredibly rich. Now, even in our 21st century years, we can see the and, and, and the, uh, the uh, Greek word that they use here for tax co collector. Sometimes you'll hear the word pu publican. Oftentimes they're used in the same context as robbers and as thieves and as extortionists. They were essentially the mafia. They were the government-sponsored mafia of their day. And, but, but to even sort of twist the knife in deeper, right? Because this is an incredible betrayal. Your country's been conquered by these foreigners, and you're collaborating with them to rob your own people? That's egregious. That cuts across all cultures. But something that cuts across even, uh, even more deeply is family. And if you know anything about the Jewish nation and how they understood themselves is they understood themselves as one big family with Abraham as their father. And when when the Jewish people came back from exile in Israel, they actually split up. I mean, I mean from exile in Egypt, they actually split up their promised land into different sections. And each section belonged to a family group. And of course, as that uh, subsection and subsection of a subsection. So in so in short, you were where you lived were, were almost your second, third, fourth cousins. So not only were you betraying, not only was Matthew betraying his own country, not only was he getting rich, but he was betraying his own family. Why? So he could become wealthy. Of all the people that Jesus goes to, he doesn't go to the religious ones. He doesn't go to the good ones. He goes to Matthew. And what's also fascinating, too, is who goes to who? 
Does Jesus kind of say, you know, Matthew, you're a sinner, but, you know, it's your decision. It's your choice. If you turn away from your life, you can come to me. You can follow me. But is that what happens here? Thank God, absolutely not. What does Jesus do? But he goes in. And he goes right into the place where Matthew is deep in his own sin. He goes into his tax booth, his, his office, if you will. And he's literally doing the business of sin. And Jesus comes in, walks in, breaks into his world like a, bright, like a beam of bright light into a dark room. And what does he say? Would you like to follow me? I'm giving you an opportunity. I'm giving you a chance. No, there's no question mark at the end of that sentence of, of that. And when you look at the Greek, it's a command. It's, it's in the imperative tense. And what Jesus is literally doing as fully God as well as fully man is going in and commanding Matthew to stand up and follow him. Come with me. I choose you not just to be my disciple and, and participate in the work of spreading God's love, but in salvation itself. And doesn't that turn the way that we understand Jesus on its head? The way that we, because essentially what's happening here is Matthew is being rewarded for being a selfish jerk. That's not how the world works, right? God loves the good people, right? And if you clean yourself up and get yourself straight, then God will reward you with salvation. But the scandal of who Jesus is and what he does and what he's done for, for me is he's come in right to the darkest places of our lives, walked in, pointed at us and said, you will follow me. Come. Come. In 1571, a man by the name of uh, Michelangelo Caravaggio was, was born. And for those of you that know anything about art history, he became a very pro prolific Christian artist in um, Italy and in the whole Mediterranean area. And, and, and as he went through life painting, he was not a quiet, calm Christian man. He was hot-tempered. He, numerous times in his life, not, not only wounded other people in barroom brawls with his sword, but literally two times in his life has killed a man and just absconded, left town, gone to another city to hide from the police. And you, if, if you were to chart out Caravaggio's life, what you'd see is this dip down of sin and selfishness. Living a life of sin in more ways than, than a just murder, but in debauchery and drinking and, and, and fighting. And then he would have this moment of clarity where he would say, Lord, how have I let myself get to this place? And he'd go see a priest or he'd go see a monk and he'd repent and he'd come back again. And no sooner was he finally getting his painting, he was getting these, these, these commissions, that he would drink too much and go stab someone else. And fall back down again. And you see this undulation in his entire life. And in fact, one city state, I think it was a Milan, was so upset with him that they had commissioned him 
to do a portrait or, or a, a, a painting uh, for one of the churches of David and, and Goliath. The, the moment of the victorious David after he had killed the enemy of God's people, Goliath, where he's holding up his severed head. But after they had commissioned him, he literally killed a man and had to run away. And they sent the, you know, their, their version of the police after him. But he was so repentant that he finished the portrait. And it's the only self-portrait Caravaggio ever did. And it was David holding the severed head of uh, Goliath, God's enemy. And it was Goliath's head that was his self-portrait. In which he was saying, I'm the real enemy of God's pe people. Have mercy on me. I repent. Well, not only is Caravaggio's story a fascinating one of a, of a sinner who constantly falls in and out of sin, but yet he's never exhausted God's grace. What, what's so powerful and frankly why he's one of my favorite Christian artists is because he's one of the biggest sinners. And because he's one of the biggest sinners, because he's, if you will, a Matthew of his day. His great understanding and love of what Christianity is really all about comes out in all of his art. And of course, one of my favorites is where he actually paints this scene from, from, from Scripture. And it looks like this. Of course, Caravaggio is trying to be very um, relevant. So, of course, he's put everybody in this late uh, 16th, early 17th century um, garb. But you see, what you have here is, of course, um, and I've blown up this side. But of course, what you have on this side is, of course, Jesus pointing. You've got Peter. And Jesus is coming to the tax collector's office. And the man pointing at himself with the long beard, you know, the one that's so well-dressed, that's Matthew himself. And you have all these different responses, right? These two are totally indifferent. They could care less. They're in their counting. This young boy has no idea what's happening, right? Who's this guy? Why did he barge in? This person thinks that there's going to be a fight. He's really excited about that. Um, but here you have Jesus pointing at Matthew. And over here on this side in the vertical, I watch way too much public television public television okay so this is what you're getting out of this all right so you get over here in the vertical holiness light streaming through shining and then over here in the horizontal you've got Matthew and if you look at Matthew's face look at the shop look at the shop you want me you sure you want me do you not see where we are? Do you not see who I am? And I know that you are a good holy man. You want me? It's preposterous. And of course, what Caravaggio does so brilliantly here is that not only does he sort of capture the drama of the, of, of the situation, but he also focuses on how this is even possible. How is it possible that a sinner of sinners could become not just a disciple of Jesus Christ, but an author of one of the Gospels? How in the world could years and years and years of sin, of violence, of stealing, ever be cleansed? Well, the answer is in the painting, isn't it? 
over here in the horizontal, there's a gap, right? There's a gap between the holy and the unholy. Well, what spans that gap? Look above Jesus' hand. Is it just a window? No, it's a cross. It's a cross. And what Caravaggio so brilliantly understands, because he knows that he's Matthew. He knows that the Lord Jesus has shown him more mercy than he will ever deserve. And he knows the way that that's possible is because that very man died on a cross to take away every last sin, past, present, and future. And he knows that it's, and, and if you look too, it's also the same hand as uh, Michelangelo's creation of Adam, isn't it? You see that, you know, the famous picture right from the Sistine Chapel where God's reaching out towards, towards Adam? It's the same hand, and that's what Caravaggio is hearkening back to. He's literally recreating Matthew. Forgiven, but no longer the old man of sin, a new man, a, a disciple, a forgiven one. So this is interesting, but what in the world does this have to do with us? Well, three things. You haven't figured it out already. We are Matthew. We are Matthew. I am Matthew. Every single one of us, no matter how hard we try, we cannot stop sinning. Because where does sin start? We'll pray a prayer um, after this. But where, where does sin start? Does it start with our actions? Did Matthew become a sinner the moment that he began to extort other pe people? No. Matthew became a sinner the moment that he said, I want to be rich. I want what the rich people have. How can I get that? They've got what I want. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I can control my body, but I can't control my heart. I can't control my mind. And so, though we may not have acted like Matthew, all of us have felt like Matthew. All of us, every single one of us, me leading the pack out of all of you, I guarantee you that. Do not de deserve the Lord Jesus to come into to my life and rescue me. I do not deserve a cross. But it's his good pleasure to rescue me. So if you're coming in here this morning, maybe you've heard this a million times, but this week you have failed and failed and failed the Lord over again. Know that that is still God for you. He's still calling you. Maybe you're hearing this for the first time. Maybe your whole life you've grown up, be it inside of church or outside of church, that thinking that God rewards the good people, right? And so the way that I get right with God is by doing good things, earning my way back in. But of course, that's not the gospel, is it? That's not Matthew. The great irony of what Matthew did is he did everything wrong, and that's what forced Jesus to come in. So if that's you, and maybe it's been years since you've walked into a church, maybe you haven't walked into a church ever. Know that this forgiveness is for you, and Jesus has literally walked into this room by the Holy Spirit and said, follow me. What does that mean? Lord, I'm sorry. For living my life my way. I turn away from that. I get up. I leave my tax booth. And I go.
That's what a Christian is. A Christian is a forgiven sinner. A disciple is not a doer of good things. A disciple is someone who loves Jesus because they realize they were Matthew, but, but Jesus in his great love and pleasure came into our dark den of iniquity and rescued us. And because we are Matthew, not only are we forgiven, but we're also disciples. We're also people that the Lord invites to go out into the world. You see, the rest of Matthew's life was a life lived walking around the world and proclaiming the good news that he himself had experienced. A God who loves sinners, a God that wants to forgive, a God that wants to bring in, a God that wants to heal, a God that wants to restore. And he experienced that firsthand. Unfortunately, this language has crept into the church that there's a difference between a believer and a disciple. But that's not true, is it? The moment that you put your trust in Christ, you are a full disciple. And you are one that's called not just to love Christ, but out of great joy, not obligation, but of great joy for what he's done for, for you. We go out into the world, and that's where we're going to begin next week. As we look at Matthew 10, and we look at how Jesus sends out the disciples two by two to take the gospel back to their own country. And we're going to stay in that one chapter for the next two, three months. But of course, what's so amazing is the same sinner of sinners is the author of our gospel. He wrote this. This is his story of his savior. And, and again, I'm going to probably say this every Sunday for the next three months. Why? Because it's so important for us to understand. The number one thing that I hear when, when, when I encourage people to go out as disciples, go out as those that Jesus sends out to take his love into the world is, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to tell people. I don't know all the answers. But if we're all Matthew, we've experienced the absurd, loving forgiveness of our Savior. Don't we all have something to say? Don't we all have a story? And y'all, this is just one man's story. And how many of us are changed by it even this day? How many of us sinners are encouraged by it that God's forgiveness isn't old? It's just one person's story of a forgiving Savior. And if Matthew can just tell his story, then you can just tell your story too. So, what is the disciples' call? First, I'm a sinner, but I'm a sinner that the Lord Jesus Christ came to out of great love and rescued me, pulled me out of this pit, and he sent me out into the world to tell my story. And that's something that every single person in this room can do. I don't know what you're doing tomorrow for a Labor Day, but if you're hanging out with neighbors or friends that don't, don't understand this. They haven't heard this. Tell your story. Tell your story. Between now and next Sunday, can we commit to do what disciples do and just go out and tell 
one other person the story of how you were Matthew, but Jesus Christ saved you. Why? Because that is where real life is found. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have rescued us. We thank you that you have walked into the dark places of our hearts and minds while we were at the height of our sinfulness and pointed at us and said, follow me. I choose you. You are mine. We thank you that you filled us so full of your spirit of love that we followed that call. Now, Lord, send us out to be disciples, to share our simple story of a loving and forgiving Savior. Lord, give us the courage to share that with just one person who doesn't know you. We ask all this in the name of your Son, our Savior, and Rescuer, Jesus Christ. Amen.